0: Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful, as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education.
1: We're here to talk with a good friend and old colleague, well, current colleague too still, Dr. Bourgeois, and uh, I do a lot of work with him. I've worked with him for many, many years, and we're having a good old time here offline talking about fun things. So uh, Trey, why don't you throw out your first question?
0: (laughs) Well, I've been uh, privileged to to read some of your research, uh, Steve, and, and to listen to some of your uh, Podcast um, on the subject of motivation and the use of incentives in the classroom and and this is very uh, close to my heart uh, as as a teacher of middle school boys um, and and I hope at the end of our conversation today you can you can answer um, probably the most important question uh, pertaining to this conversation, which is um, which one of uh, these two um, will make my
2: student most virtuous
0: is it is it a skittles or b m&ms and why
2: well thank you both for having me i, I, I think the, the the short answer is skittles of of course um, it, and it's changed because if this were 20 years ago i think m&ms would have would have won the day
1: I don't know. I'm thinking peanut m ms wins the day here.
2: <laughs> uh, um, I don't know. I mean what, what, what so give us some context backwards for for that that comment. I th- i'm I'm kind of interested because I love the topic, but I don't want to just run with it because I'd be talking for 90 minutes on you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> all right, yeah where where's that come from, Trey?
0: Well, um, I was listening to uh, one of your conversations uh, on, your, on your podcast, uh, The Old School, um, and my understanding is that you uh, went to a conference some years ago in which that was the very subject of at least part of the conference, was that debate uh, where, where teachers, uh, in all earnestness, were seriously trying to uh, sort out um, which of those two candies they should use in the classroom to get what they wanted out of their students?
2: It was a little bit painful because it was a workshop on how to teach social studies and the the, the first comment that everyone in the room, except for myself and my colleague agreed upon was that um, history is boring. We all know this. so that so that was that was the first thing that kind of got under our skin, but true enough, they, they, they were debating. It became a, a lively debate uh, on, on the type of uh, token reinforcement that, that would be most effective. And of course, in my research, um, I, I would say, don't do it for a, a long list of reasons. Um, but, it, but I think it is an interesting example of, of, of where things can go and the fact that we're fighting upstream because these are considered in the field best practices. Um, Uh uh So it's it's an uphill battle, Uh, you know, particularly with younger uh, grade students. uh, It's kind of a survival technique. So I'm mindful of that, you know, that that, that it is counterintuitive and and truly a best practice in, in quotation marks.
1: You know, I'd I'd like to bring up something from your podcast that really struck me as well. And in fact, I want our listeners to know how great your podcast is, the the old school. I've been, I love it. I've enjoyed it so much. One of the recent topics that you uh, discussed with your co-host was on motivation and learning, which is kind of why I wanted to bring you in today to talk to us about the same topic and sort of expand a little more on some of the things you guys talked about there. I heard your co-host Ross ask in a paraphrase, is it really the job of the teacher to motivate students? And at the high school level, which is where we're working, is there any hope in saving the curious nature of the learner inside of them? And you, and you said a few important things that I'd like our listeners to hear regarding students being internally motivated by the subject matter and for the teacher to cultivate the desire for learning. Uh, lifelong learning in their students so the big issue we're struggling with is how to help teachers do this uh, how do we help them cultivate this lifelong learning so that their motivation is internal? I'd like you to talk to those teachers and what would you say to them
2: It's really hard to talk about motivation because we use it you know as, as a verb quite often you know we're going to motivate our children to learn and and many teachers think that is their their role. Um, and, and I would say um, th- that students are already motivated. It's their natural curiosity. That's, that's part of being, being human. And so by in- intentionally motivating uh, a child, what, what you do is, is create a dichotomy. Is it autonomy supportive? Is it controlling? And uh, students over the years learn that this is what school is. School is not inherently Interesting, and the, without the motivation, why do we do it? You know, if we're not going to get paid for this stuff, um, you know, leave me alone. And and that seems to be a little bit more more overt as students get into middle school and certainly high school. Um, but I, I would argue that it that it's cumulative, um, so that, that you know you can study motivation over time, and, and it's a it goes um, downward from left to right between grades three uh, and eleven. And so there, there's something going on there, um, but I think your your question your bigger question is how do we you know change the direction of that line? Is that where you're getting at? yeah
1: right, right
2: yeah um the you know I think that the there's there's really a chain of control that 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 starts you know well above the level of the teacher um so so they are controlled by the. By their administrator, who is controlled actually by the superintendent or the head of the organization, they start to look for outcomes. You know, we we want to pass a certain number of tests, and and it's understandable that you know that's how schools get shut down. Uh, but the fact that teachers <clears throat> are held to a, a standard and they and they they're controlled, um, it it trickles down to the to the students. So I I would say that. It's always an issue of, of leadership. You know, as a teacher in the classroom ha- has you know some wiggle room, but if they're being controlled, they're going to behave in, in a predictable manner. I would say as well.
1: Well, so so, what would you say to the headmasters who are you know setting up maybe a new classical school? Would be some practical ways for them um, to help change this uh, this habit.
2: Um, there. Uh, there are two things that sometimes get mixed up. One, one is uh, student behavior and the other is, is student performance. Mm-hmm. And, and if you use one technique for, for both, often you, you fall into the trap. And so if we're talking about virtuous behavior, um, many uh, teachers of younger students have systems in place, um, color-coded sticks or uh, usually something in, involving dif- different stages of being bad pretty much, okay. but also maybe the, there's some positive incentives for, for you know, which I don't like either, you know, like catching a student doing something right. Um, so, so that, but that is for behavior and, and applying something like that to, to academics, to, to learning, you know, is, is problematic. And I, I would argue that the long-term effect of that behavioral system, uh, is also demotivating, as far as quality motivation. You know, everybody is motivated all the time to do things. Um, so there's, you can't escape motivation, but, but what's the quality of it? And I, you know, I would say that uh, we're trying to, we, we use this term, lifelong learners. We want to foster mm-hmm. lifelong learning. It's a slogan. Um, mm-hmm. but, but if we practice that, and I think that would be what classical schools aspire to do, um, we we need to not get in our own way. We need to find a way to foster the motivation that's there. Um, there are some techniques, you know, some practical things besides avoiding, you know, giving the token rewards, treating students like pets, you know, okay. essentially. Um, but the the main thing is to allow students to make choices, um, mm-hmm. and and that uh, you tend to value what they're learning, the context. Um, and, and focus less on the assessment. You know the, the assessment in, in classical schools I would hope is more holistic um, and it's not just you know multiple choice, which is a I would say an American phenomenon in the traditional public schools. Uh, but I think that the type of assessment uh, would, would be helpful um, but you know it, it would be a whole long professional development session over many, uh, months and months to because we're trying to um, slow something that's ingrained, you know so it, it's not just one teacher you I would say that you're going to see that from everyone, a whole faculty
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well Steve um, a, a guest that we've had on the show before uh, Joshua Gibbs mm-hmm. uh, also <laughs> takes that that phrase to task um, the idea of being a lifelong learner, and I think the way we used it. Um, uh, the way it has been used um, in the past, and the way it's used, let's just say in you know in everyday speech, you know means just you know this this inner drive to pursue knowledge and and to and to um, you know don't let don't put learning into a box that is just something that happens sort of in your school years. you know, continue reading, continue uh, pursuing a lifelong education. But of course, the question must be asked, you know, uh, be a lifelong learner of what? You know, um, learning, it seems to me, is something we do by nature. We, we're learning every day, we learn from every experience. Right. And I think the same can be applied to this idea of motivation, because if we go back to the root of the word, really we're just talking about movement, what moves us. Right. Right? And we're moved constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, So perhaps to to circle back around to this idea of motivation and its role in the classroom, um, I could see why a teacher would be deeply concerned about wanting to move his or her students. And then the question just becomes, well, um, how does one best do that? How do we move people? (coughs) Or is that even the teacher's job to go back to, to Adrian's question.
2: Well, I, I would say that there's a, a continuum of motivation and um, maybe at one side would be a, a motivation where you're pretty well tuned out of, of, of in intentionally rejecting what's happening. But um, to say someone is internally or externally motivated, there's a whole lot of distance in, in between there where the, mm-hmm. the, the student uh, might initially be extrinsically motivated, uh, often to do things they don't want to do, like mow the lawn, or you know, in, in the classroom to do a series of repetitive math problems. It's more about the outcome,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, but the educative process, you know, I would hope uh, would gradually uh, move students to the other end of, of intrinsic, uh, where the but it has to go through steps where the students. Uh, internalize and it becomes part of their sense of self, they begin to set goals, and then through their success over time, and that's the, the key part of this, mastery experiences lead to confidence and it kind of builds on itself, um, and, and eventually uh, it, it could, to a point, become intrinsic, but it's not like this holy land, we're now intrinsic, it, it's always moving and it's domain specific. You know, I'm highly motivated to to read some of these books behind me, um, and and to understand them. For no no one's asking me to do that, but there are are, are tasks um, that are even academic tasks that I'm less likely to do. And so, and so I, I think it is very complicated, but but definitely domain specific, particularly for for young people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I was reading through your um, your um, Research on praise, um, and I noticed in that uh, that most students um, or most teachers like to make their praise public instead of private, in order to set an example. I, and that really struck me when I was reading that. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about it because as it, I'm a, I teach at a small homeschool co-op, mm-hmm. and I tend to um, make it a point to not praise the students and. I actually email the parents and let them know of the successes the students are having or, you know, any disciplinary issues I'm having. I, I, feel, um, I feel kind of torn. I felt torn when I was reading it about how so many teachers seem to think it's really important to make their praise public. And um, I would really like to know a little more about your thoughts on that and from that research you did.
2: Um, a lot of this comes, um, and these are not my own theories, but it comes out of self-determination theory at D.C. Richard Ryan, mm-hmm. and this is a body of re- research from over 40 years. They look um, closely at, at praise and, and, and the consequences, particularly the unintended consequences of praise, mm-hmm. and, and what they've found, uh, and, and really what I write about it, is that there are different types of Praise It depends on how it's perceived by the person receiving the praise. And, and once again, it can be perceived as controlling or, or autonomy supportive. Um, so with respect to public praise, um, number one, uh, if there's an informational content, uh, for example, instead of the ubiquitous good job,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, you, you explain it, I, I like the way you did so-and-so and even better, tell me about this, what was your rationale? Then it becomes not about you asserting your uh, control um, with your judgment, but having a conversation and maybe learning from the the child. Um, and, and so for me, that lends itself to, to being private, but I, I could see that as a, you know, a classroom technique as well, if you follow that next step. Huh. So, so if it's just the... the the praise and and asserting this was good this was not good you know and to be really Mm -hmm. really simplistic um that's where you get into trouble but i think even public if if you're willing to have that conversation and 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 not just explain here's why i think it was good but rather um inquire a little bit more um then then you really have something what i don't like uh, particularly for behavior is to, to catch somebody doing something, like imagine a student is standing quietly in line. I think I use this example. Um, whereas some other students are talking and the, the teacher, and you hear this in elementary mm-hmm. schools a lot, Oh, notice how Johnny is, is standing nicely in, in line. And the, how, how does Johnny feel about that? You know, they, they, they feel embarrassed normally. They don't just, you know, you know, stand up straight and say, look at me. Um, but I, I think that's kind of a cheap approach, um, and, and and it's putting a student on the spot. Um, they are communicating that this is a, the behavior they want. I think there are better ways to get there. Um, but but you know to to go back to the informational content. I mean that that to me is really really good teaching, um, and and being and and maybe more in line with a classical education where where it's about engaging and. Back and forth, as opposed to showing that here's the right answer. Let's move on now.
1: So what I what I think I hear, I want to clarify, is that you're the idea of, say, acknowledging a student that gave um, a right answer, then asking them share more. You know, you're you're kind of entering into a dialectic with them. You see that as a form of praise. Is that what you're saying?
2: Um, It it has the I I think a, a, a a positive, a desired effect of, of affirmation. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're also communicating something to the to the rest of the group. And and that that student has a much more positive uh, internalization than than just I got the right answer. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 it becomes a, you know teaching, you know, is is a long-term task. And, and so it's it's not about just getting that right answer and moving on. And I, I watch a lot of teaching and, you know, sometimes you see students raise their hand because they want to say a one word answer, mm-hmm. you know, and, and often in Europe, and I've visited a lot of German schools. Um, that's not enough. You know, the, 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 I mean, they're, they're going to ask another question. You need to expect that. And so it's a little bit more risky because, okay, I got the right answer. What's something's going to come. Uh, you know, otherwise, it, it does become transactional and a little bit mm-hmm. short term, and 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 I'm always concerned about the the long term motivational uh, consequences uh, of something like that. There's there's nothing wrong with uh, praising. It's a it's a good thing, but it's about how you de- deliver that praise. There, there's research from people like Carol Dweck who talk about praising uh, for the effort, as you know, as opposed to for being smart. You know, you're so smart, you get a pat mm-hmm. on the head. Uh, you know that that really goes on the side of let's let's avoid that one. You know even in parenting, and and I think that you know there's a, a crossover between what happens in the school and what happens at home. And so often teachers are using um, techniques uh, that they use as parents,
0: mm-hmm. right? And so I'm I'm somewhat familiar. I want to think I heard I heard the the lady you referenced in a radio interview some years ago, and I remember sharing that with my wife and. Um, and and we we've tried to implement uh, her advice in our own parenting, the way we think about praise uh, with our children, and it seems to me that in the classroom setting, and we're talking about praise as motivation uh, in, in some ways, um, you know, to praise a student for getting the right answer. Um, I mean, the right answer could have been uh, acquired by uh, sort of any means. Um, it may have been acquired by the fact that uh, he had um, he had his notes open on the table, and he had to glance down on it at j- just at the right time, <laughs> right? right? And so, it's not necessarily evidence that there was there was you know a real um, sort of. Uh, process that the student was working through that you would like the other students to work through. He just happened to see the answer in his notes and there it was, he gave it at the right time. Bada bing, bada boom, you've got the equation. And so what I hear you saying is that um, um, perhaps a different way of praising, uh, a better way of praising would be to say something like, you know, I really like the way you were thinking through that or, um, or maybe in private to pull a student aside you know, a student who otherwise has a hard time attending in class, and say, you know, Johnny, it was it was a really noble thing of you to uh, to give such good attention today in class. It seems to me that that's a different way of praising than just um, praising a student for saying the right thing at the right time.
2: Um, well, well, Trey, one one of the things in this motivational theory um, would be how you deliver, how you follow up uh, on the praise, and um, the anticipation of a reward, whether it's a you know, token reward or a verbal reward, which is praise, uh, that plays into the equation because students are expecting the good job and they get a little endorphin rush um, and, and then they move on. And I think you know, taking that and maybe minimizing that expectation um, to, and, and you can, as a teacher, just acknowledge that was correct rather than praising the student directly and, and downplaying it. You know, and that's a uh, European technique. I mean, I'm, I was surprised that there's none of that. You know, they just say, that's the right answer. They don't expect it, you know, and, and then it mm-hmm. becomes more about the the content than that short-term affirmation. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm.
0: I wanted to bring Some up, this comes go out ahead. In the sorry. process of, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, it's I, okay. I was, I was wanting to loop you in here, Adrian, because a lot of this seems to come out uh, when, stu- when teachers are learning how to, um, how to use narration in the classroom. And it's really difficult not to just be over the top and praising like, oh yes, that's right. And yes, that happened next because you're so excited that they're that they're remembering. <laughs> um, but some good teachers that I've seen model narration don't do that at all. Um, and I wonder, Adrienne, if you could maybe uh, loop in Charlotte Mason here um, and, and how she handled some of these things related to praise and motivation.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Well, on, um, well, you know, Steve, well, you both know how much I love Cheryl Mason. <laughs> it's hard for me not to bring her up in, a, in, a, in any of the interviews right here. But um, I was reading um, in her philosophy of education, uh, looking for some things she said about praise, rewards, motivation, and she uh, studied many educational philosophies and she inferred this following from from the Scottish philosophical tradition. So I thought it was quite interesting. She said, the desire of knowledge, curiosity, was the chief instrument of education. That this desire might be paralyzed or made powerless like an unused limb by encouraging other desires to intervene between a child and the knowledge proper for him. The desire for place, emulation, for prizes, avarice, for power, ambition, for praise, vanity, might each be a stumbling block to him. It seemed to me that we teachers had unconsciously elaborated a system which should secure the discipline of the schools and the eagerness of the scholars by means of marks, prizes, and the like, and yet eliminate that knowledge hunger itself, the quite sufficient incentive to education. And she elaborates her philosophy of education that every child wants affirmation and every child is eager for knowledge. What she discovered in her decades of teaching was, and I quote, the delightfulness of knowledge is sufficient to carry a pupil joyfully and eagerly through his school life and that prizes and places, praise, blame and punishment are unnecessary insofar as they are used to secure ardent interest and eager work. The love of knowledge is sufficient. I think I, I hear this very much coming from what you're saying, Steve, and, and from the research you've given and any more um, examples you can give to support this or any ideas from your research would be great.
2: Well, sure, that's a, that's a wonderful quote um, worthy of putting on the wall, mm-hmm. really, because there's so much overlap and, and she was you know definitely ahead of her time. Um, and how, how to apply that, you know. I know she she had other sources, but she applied it to the classroom mm-hmm. and to the you know to teaching. Um, I think giving the example of reading, you know, that there's something that we all love, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's why we're here, right? Um, but but you know, in motivational theory, there, there's something called the overjustification effect. It means you're praising or rewarding something that's already inherently enjoyable.
0: Mm-hmm. You
2: know, like, like reading a book, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there, there's research about the effect of um, maybe paying students for reading. you know. And, and a lot of schools get these great ideas. Let's do a read-a-thon, let's do something, and we'll give prizes for the students mm-hmm. who read. And they think because it's reading, it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that over-justification effect has the effect of communicating something you know it and and if you do this over time it's that reading itself is not valuable unless you get the prize Um, and so you have the you can really undermine the motivation systematically i think that's why a lot of people don't like reading as they get through high school um, because of all the narrow testing on what they read read but also the you know, connecting it to grades and rewards and so forth. Um, so the you're 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 praising or rewarding when it's not necessary, and that has some really dangerous implications. Because you know, students uh, to become readers—that's that's what we want. When we say lifelong learning, I'm really talking about being a reader. It's it's pretty mm-hmm. straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know, in, in other domains, so you wanted an example, um, I used to teach a music appreciation course, or actually it was called Applied Music um, in, in high school. and it was a wonderful setup because I had a room that had a bunch of offices that were converted uh, to practice rooms. And so we had about eight practice rooms. I would assign groups with a project. Here's what we're going to do, you're going to, Maybe take a Beatles song and turn it into something in one hour and then the next class period, you're going to have 30 minutes to rehearse, then you're going to perform to everybody. And so that's what you need is a task that with not enough time to complete it. Um, <laughs> and then it's it's group work and they're going to put something together, but but as a, you know, I mean, I was really mindful of, of the motivational theory that I'm espousing, and so I would walk around those rooms. They had windows, which is good when you have high school students, you know, on doors without windows, um, so I'd walk by, and if, if they're rehearsing being productive, um, I'd keep walking. You know, I'd, I'd never break the spell, and that's something that um, Maria Montessori said. You know, mm-hmm. when a student is at work, you never praise to break the spell because then you, you shift that. It's like the act of observation changes what you're observing. So you just keep moving and keep moving. And then if you if somebody needs help or something, you, you use your judgment and move in. But in general, my idea was to keep walking. And, and so that that's a way not to interject myself into their process. But the other side of it is when they did perform um, sure, we had to give them a, a grade, but it was more about the process, how they interacted mm-hmm. uh, that downplayed it. So nobody really talked about grades. It was about the performance and, and the you know, what they learned doing it. and we had a lot of reflections. Tell us what your struggles were, what did you learn when you um, you, you how, how did you decide who was leading the group and and all these little little choices so immediately, um, check off different boxes meaning how do you get away from assessment 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 mm-hmm. okay. so i think that that that's an example of many ways that you you could get in your own way as a teacher mm-hmm. know, by by you know by praising by talking about grades those are the, the two monsters in my view that we need to watch out against you know praise rewards and also focus on this is on the test right
0: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, and I say uh, I say this because I've I've met a few, I met a few students that had been former students that had been Dr. Bourgeois' students in high school. Um, I met them when they were young adults, in their twenties, and every one of them said, "Oh, he was my favorite teacher."
2: Oh, <laughs> <That was> good. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. See, I like, I like the praise right there. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not going to ask why because it could be for a million reasons.
1: Well, actually it was because you, your classes were very interesting and engaging and they felt like they were being heard. You know, they felt and they felt like they were really learning. Um so I think I think your example of of that project is is a great example of of that. And I wish I wish there was something we could would say to teachers who are feeling um, sort of stuck in a school where they feel obligated um, to comply to these you know, standards of grades and, and um, rewards. And it's frustrating because I, I attend so many schools and I see it and I, I don't even know, I don't even know how to address, it, how to encourage them. And it, it's, um, it seems to me that it's kind of an art, an art of teaching. Um, yeah, that needs to be learned. And I don't. Uh, are Steve? Are there any resources that you would offer to teachers to to read, to go uh, to?
0: Well, Steve, perhaps yeah. before you answer that, um, maybe, maybe this will help us guide our our, mm-hmm. our thoughts. Um, if I understand your research correctly, um, it's not it's not um, it's not a bad thing, especially for for very young students to to have. Uh, certain uh systems, let's say in place um, to 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 reward them and and to give them um, say little treats or something along the way um, but the idea is that they transition out of that right that that they don't stay there, and what we're observing is that um, the things that are intended to just sort of make a connection between a good idea and a sweet thing right in let's say kindergarten or first grade, are still being practiced um, up all the way through high school and perhaps even beyond. And so my question is, um, if, if a teacher did want to get out of that system, but you already have students who are in so many ways um, conditioned by that system and a school that's conditioned by that system, um, we know that um, it's best that, that we break them of that um, but how do you make that transition when your students um, are in so many ways sort of geared towards that sort of uh, uh,
2: approach? Well, well there, there aren't resources in, in something that's really counterintuitive and countercultural. Mm-hmm. So this is this is radical stuff from the perspective of a, a classroom teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, the mm-hmm. idea I used as being a reformer, reforming within your own classroom. And, 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 uh-huh. and if you deliver the result, which from the principle is that you have a, you know, a student population in your group of students that are not misbehaving, first of all, uh, and also that they're, they're passing the standardized tests and, and they should, I mean, they're not mutually exclusive, you know, using the, this approach. Uh, I would posit uh, increases per, uh, achievement, and there's research to support that. Um, but it's taking a longer view on, on student performance, but you're going to get there. And so if it, I think it's, in a way, you can be more efficient with the class time if you take out the nonsense um, and, and actually have a more authentic interaction with students. So deliver those two things, you know, well-behaved students and and high performance. Um, no one's gonna question how you get there. Um, mm. you know, I, I do bristle when they have uh, school level uh, type competitions um, and, and and the your voice at that point just should be heard and said, have you ta- thought about the fact that this does work in the short run, but it could have long-term undermining con- uh, or unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, so be a voice. For that, and, and maybe you can have uh, some uh, effect on the other teachers, but but do it very carefully because you, you know, yeah. if you're in a traditional public school, you you know, th- this is not the approach that they would tell you in their professional development.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, I, I had a I had a mentor of mine, um, a former professor, who uh, spoke into my life um, beyond just helping me read Aristotle. He also talked to me as a young father. Um, I, I had I had to. Uh, just two children at the time and and I can't remember how this came up in conversation, but he 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 talked to me about how parents will oftentimes use, um, you know, what they call the magic word and you probably know what the magic word is. What's the magic word? Um, please. Thank you. It's please, <laughs> please and thank you. Mm-hmm. And and he he what he said about that is um, he says what 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 happens oftentimes is children knowing that that's the magic word think that anytime they say please, they get whatever they want, because it's magic, right? (laughs) And I realized that my children figured that out pretty early on, like, well, as long as I attach a please to it, then I will get exactly what I want when I want it, when I say I want it. Mm -hmm. And so we had to very quickly move them towards, okay, well, yes, you need to say please, but you need to know that that's just the right thing to do. It won't necessarily get you what you want when you want it. It's you just do it because it's the it's the right way to speak to your your mother and father.
2: That's a, a wonderful example. And I, I I wonder if that's an American phenomenon. You know, we've we we've, we've created a, a group of people who are quite comfortable, you know, thinking that they're gonna get what they ask for, but also that they're gonna get affirmation and they expect it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so a little bit of misdirection not giving them that. That praise, um, but but they're you know just from social media and how how our young people behave, they're they're really comfortable asserting themselves as look what I did, and 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 maybe it's a result of some of the parenting and, and teaching. Um, you know, to me that's not a good thing. We, ideally, you're a little bit humble when you get a you know some praise. You know, if I said Trey, that was a really wonderful point you just made. You're so smart. You know, you'd feel a little uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Uh, that, but 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 having a conversation is not like that, and and so I I would say that it's part of the the process of of educating students over time that we need to pull those things away so they're not expecting them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I I you know I, I think I've said before that this uh, process actually gets ramped up and they double down on this as students get older and get start preparing for college. You know the ex external motivation becomes in a way stronger you know? and so I, w- I would say if there's any way to push against it uh, if I can give one more example yeah um, I-, I was asked to speak at a, a a relatively large company that had an online math program um, and and I would say cutting edge uh, for, for young kids teaching them to do math but online it was a supplemental math program and a lot of money in that math program, a lot of you know, funding to, to get there. Uh, but what they did was, was, you know, kind of the opposite of what we're espousing here. They had a lot of gamification elements, and students were getting, I guess you call it, badges uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and competition. All you know, all these things that are clearly extrinsic motivators um, to young children. But they maintained it throughout the, the program, and so I was to give a, a, a talk um, at lunchtime so they had some you know, a, a classroom set up for people like me to come in and talk to them share research and so I did and I, I was surprised that it was packed <laughs> you know, so we had 30 or so people in there and, and then it was also virtual and so their whole organization had it on you know on their computers and so I had a really large audience and uh, as you can imagine, I, I talked to them about the gamification. I said, you need to be careful about the long-term effects of this. Um, I, I didn't want to sound like the boogeyman or the person who canceled <laughs> Christmas, but I, I said, be careful in the long run because they're going to value the, the badges uh, more than, you know, than the math. I mean, there's a, a good thing about solving a problem being successful. But again, they're, you're double downing on that feeling. Um, So my recommendation, and I think this was kind of a soft recommendation because I I didn't want to be too rough on them, but I I said you need to consider withdrawing this approach over time, you know, phasing it out. Uh, And Mm -hmm. if you can do that, then you're following motivational theory that has a long-term effect, but don't do the opposite. And uh, they applauded at the end, you know, I think they needed to hear it. Um, but but we're we're fighting against a lot of things. You know, I think technology is mm-hmm. is in there because by its nature, it's it's transactional. You did this, you get this. Good job.
1: It's true. It's true. I see the same issue with the um, accelerated reading program, mm-hmm. and I think it maybe it's called it, or at least was called Renaissance reading or something. And and they get points and stuff for whatever books and st- books have point. Rankings and students choose books based on that instead of just to read a good book. And uh, it's I, I did a lot of research in that, and it does very much damage. Um, there's there's research out there to show the damage that it does, and um, I think it's 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 a very systemic problem because a lot of schools are using programs like that, and. Um, many startup classical schools are considering those kinds of programs. Right. And I think it's, it's very concerning. I think it's a discussion not to take lightly. Um, when a classical school is starting up, what are they gonna use for their reading program? Is, and, and, you know Math programs, like you said, they really need to carefully look at, at this idea um, of rewards within the system of the program itself.
2: Well, most classical schools have wonderful mission statements, mm-hmm. vision and mission, and you know, taking a close look at those, think about the what's happening in the classroom. Is that fostering this? And maybe this is a blind spot. You know, right. they're, they're willing to um, take on something that, that might be outside of that because of the result. Uh, but I, I would argue that it's it, it is about the the process, and mm-hmm. you know, for me, that's why we're talking now. Classical schools. Um, philosophically are are more friendly and more open to this argument uh, than traditional public schools.
1: It's true, it's true. Well, and that's because classical schools are uh, rooted, should be rooted in virtue. Right. (laughs) Intellectual, moral, and physical virtue. And this is very much tied to intellectual and moral virtue.
2: Well, I'm I'm about to release a book that I and maybe I included this in one of my articles, but use the phrase rewarding virtue, and it's oh. something that you don't want to do. You know, virtue is, is enough, um, mm-hmm. but, but offering a reward, it just it really it creates psychic dissonance. Mm. You know, because we're we're getting two messages at once at once, um, which is really really confusing for a child.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I wonder, I think there's, a, there's another element here that has to do with um, how the not just how the, the teacher and the administration and the students relate, but also how the parents fit into this equation as well. I'm thinking of uh, a friend of mine who uh, is a math teacher, and I know that she has been uh, just doing her very best to, to teach math at the high school level in a way that is rooted in wonder, and um, you know, just um, having students um, just enter into the mystery that math is, and, and out of that, fall in love with math as really the language that the universe is written in, in in so many ways. Um, now, what she's having a hard time with is, even if you know, and not every student is going to go there with you. But even if she can get uh, a large number of her students to enter into that, that, that world, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to improve their SAT scores, right? Okay. Um, and that really uh, makes her job difficult because uh, parents have told her very straightforwardly, that is your job mm-hmm. is to improve my son or daughter's test score. And if they're, I'm paying a lot of money to send them to this to this private school, and if they're not going to improve their score, then I just don't know what you're doing. Like she has heard that verbatim. Yeah. <laughs> and so, what would you say to the uh, to the the teacher that finds herself in that position?
2: Well, first of all, it sounds like a, a wonderful teacher mm-hmm. who, who's taking a, a longer term approach, um, so that the the students don't pass for math class, never to return again to math. That's right. That's right. Um, so the, I mean, there there, there, there is a place for test prep uh, and sometimes you can just do that overtly. Say, okay, we've, we've done this now. We're just gonna do test prep because we're talking about SAT and do what it is, which is learning the test. I mean, I taught AP German and we had to learn the test. And, and you know, I was not a purist to that point because you know getting fours and fives on the AP test is is, is good for everybody um, so so maybe separating the two you know and say mm-hmm. now we're going to learn a little bit about the SAT and here's the format and here are some techniques it's a reality you know I think colleges are gradually phasing out or lessening the weight of the SAT but it's still there and it's probably not going anywhere um, so, so so maybe you know overtly teaching it that's fine but you know, that, that approach the, uh, to wonder, there, there's something about math specifically, you know, teaching math classically, it's, it's a challenge um, and bec- because of, of parents to some extent because they have an expectation that math is math and you need to, um, but maybe it, it's the nature of it that it lends itself to objective assessment. You know, here, here's a problem, here are the four answers, you figure out the, ra- the right one and, and fill in the bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's easy uh, to assess that way. but I would you know, tell math teachers that it's about you know I- explaining your your process. Um, so flipping it a little bit. Um, and, and showing the work is, is only everything because you, you you're trying to gauge what's in the student's brain, what's, you know as they process it, and if they have an error along the way, uh, they still may have brilliant solutions embedded in that error. Mm-hmm. Um so, so assessment has a lot to do with it. But to answer your, your question about uh SAT, you know, maybe treat it for what it is. It, it's a it's a, a test that has a format that that does help. I mean, my my kids have, have gone through SAT a couple of them, and and one took some some courses and they're not studying math. They're not even teaching math at that point. They're wow. teaching techniques yeah. um to Yeah, to that,
0: that, that breaks my heart because um you know um, to your point it is a reality and I suppose um, you know uh, we adults are responsible for that reality and so um, it seems to me that uh, and I think people are making making efforts and strides to to change things um, at that level because um, what I don't want to do is to um, if we are praising students for their uh, for their effort. I don't want to, um, I don't want to um, sort of create this system in which um, that only works in some instances, right? And um, and, and, and to in so many ways, um, you, know, have them put, you know, well, this thing you're going to do for this test is sort of in this, this separate container from our, our study of math. Um, I suppose I suppose that's a practical way of getting them to to pass the test, but if I if I am reading Simone Weil's essay correctly on um, on oh, I forget the title it's a rather unwieldy unwieldy title um, something about the, the pursuit of studies um, and the love of God do you remember the title Adrian <laughs> I the, write, desi- write it down uh, the desire the just-
1: desire for oh yeah the desire Yes. yes, the love well, what, of God is definitely in it,
0: yeah. What she talks about when it, when it comes to math is that um, the important thing is that you try really hard to get the right answer. And what you're doing is you're developing a um, habit of attention, Right, is what she calls it. And now, understandably, you know, we need uh, those who have the ability to um, to excel in math to get the right answer, right, so that we can uh, uh, use math for all the, all the wonderful things that math can help us do. Um, but in a classroom setting, it seems to me that um, because not every student is going to be a, a mathematician um, by trade, that I would primarily want to lead with, um, with that, that habit of attention and developing that um, over and above any sort of um, Uh, you know, focus on on just getting the right answer.
1: You're not talking about the love of learning and desire for God, are you? I don't think that's, is that what you're talking about?
0: Yes, that's it. Okay. But um, I wonder if if this will help us sort of uh, move into our closing remarks here, because um, I also brought a a quote um, by uh, Dr. Dennis Quinn, who is one of, Um, The teachers in the Integrated Humanities program with John Sr. and a few others, and uh, he said this uh, pertaining to motivation, he said, quote, motivation has become the bête noire of modern educators. How can the young be moved to learn? By rewards and promises of rewards? By such inducements, the young will go through the motions of education, but they will remain unmoved. By how then? Why? By exposing them to the muses, where no phenomenon is seen except under the aspect of wonder. Mistake me not, wonder is no sugary sentimentality, but rather a mighty passion, a species of fear, and all full of confrontation of the mystery of things. Through the muses, the fearful abyss of reality first calls out to that other abyss that is the human heart, and the wonder of it of its response is, as the philosophers have said, the beginning of philosophy, not merely the first step, but the arc, the principle, as one is the principle of arithmetic and the fear of God, the beginning of wisdom. Thus wonder both starts education and sustains it.
2: It's beautiful. It has a lot of implications for for the classroom and, and the calling of teaching, um, and and the the learner. Just how fragile the, the child is, because they're exposed, you know, day after day, week after week, year after week, year. And I would argue that children behave in in an expected manner based upon the mm-hmm. way that, that we treat them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to have a, a school of, of of teachers who are who understand what you just said and, and can implement it, um, it, it that, that's um, about the only hope. Um, we've been kind of talking about two different types of schools. Um, so think about the, the frame, are we talking about uh, traditional public schools or, or private schools where there's a little bit of flexibility until you get to the SAT? Um, right. When there's assessment starting in the third grade, high stakes assessments with Mm-hmm. Not only do you pass the test, but what level of passing and all kinds of things. Uh, I, I can see. I mean, I can definitely see how over time um, it gets complicated. But, but that that message, you know, should fit in a traditional public school as well, because you're talking about a calling of, of a teacher, and that. Yeah, you know, I, I really think that the the vision, the mission of, of a school, I, I'd like for there to be the same thing for a teacher. You know what are you here for? what 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 is your vision? Because they're all slightly different. and And what you talked about is is really a you know something that a teacher needs to internalize. You're, you're not going to be able to impose that you know from uh, um, headmaster to teacher. you know that, that needs to be their view. And I would say that can be cultivated through the way that the faculty interact uh, with each other, you know o- over time, but, but it's not something that can be imposed, certainly.
1: Yeah, like you said earlier, this is radical.
2: <laughs> it, it is. It's, it's it's easy to forget that, but but we're pushing upstream, and um, but it but it does it does fit you know with, mm-hmm. with, with all of the mission statements. So so they said it. So this is how they get there, right?
1: That's right. Well, um, we'd like to close our podcast uh, with. You can answer one of the two of the following questions. One would be. Um, can you think of a quote um, that has had a big impact on you personally or professionally, or what is a a book um, that you wish you had read when you were younger, or had read sooner?
2: The I, I think there there's a danger to reading books too soon, to some, you know, to some extent, and I, I think I may have. Done that, I delved into German literature and Hermann Hesse relatively early, which you know, made me quite a, a, a pessimist and ha- had some effect on on me. You know, I'm not sure a, a good thing, but as, but as as far as you know, one quote, uh, I, I'm going to quote just you know the, what I said earlier, just about Maria Montessori because she's a, a teacher of younger students and. I, I think that we we focus a lot on high school, but but early on, um just just to not break the spell. And I love the way that she uh-huh. said that because that, that we're talking about entering into sacred ground there. Uh-huh. Uh, and And if you consider that moment a sacred space, and as teachers, you know when the hair stands up on end that there's something going on there. And, and it's usually an act of generosity or insight. Uh, but we we get in, in the way of ourselves uh, often uh, you know let let it happen and they're having something internally happen to them so why why put yourself into that moment when you don't need to um so i'm, I'm going to go with that because i didn't have a, a quote handy that would, would tie all this together i have lots of quotes but but let, let's say don't break the spell
1: <laughs> i love it thank you so much steve
2: you're welcome
0: no, I just want to thank Steve for, for his time and for his research. Uh, thank you for reading. I hope you do get around to reading more of those books behind you.
2: <laughs> well, thank you. This is, this has been fun and, and I appreciate it. Thanks, Adrian. And thank you, Trey.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener-supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is, to behave under it as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven.